ASM, what's up? Thanks again for joining us online for those of you that are viewing this. Uh, we are in our series in the Gospel of John called That You May Believe. What is the point of this series? Well, straightforward, what we're after is your belief. This gospel, according to the author, John, or the disciple whom Jesus loved, one of the twelve, was written so that we might believe. Believe in what? Believe in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, that he is the Messiah, the Lamb of God, come to take away the sin of the world. And as we are looking at this passage this week, I wanted to just share uh, a thought with you, something that someone shared with me a long time ago when I was first starting out in student ministry. I was like an intern, and someone a long time ago told me as I was starting out that students will not really remember very much of what I say, but they will remember what I do and they will remember how I make them feel. And I started to think about that, and I was like, that's so weird, because I think when I was starting out, I was like, I really wanted people to remember what I say, because my words are really important, and I've studied hard when I get in front of people. And, but I've actually found this statement to be true. And even as I look back on my young life, when I was in student ministry, and I think about my youth pastor, Travis Osborne, I think about the things that I remember about him and the impact that he had in my life, which obviously, if you know my son, you know, it must have been a pretty good impact because my son's name is Travis. But when I think of Travis Osborne, here's what I remember. I do remember a lot about the way that he treated me. I remember a lot about the way that he made me feel. I remember a lot about the way that he lived out Jesus in front of me. But I cannot tell you anything about the exact words he said and what he taught. I just don't remember that. It's actually not really, for the most part, how our brains work. We have to see something over and over and over again and hear it over and over and over again for it to be quotable. But for something to be repeatable, we actually just need it seen multiple times. And we remember a lot more about what we need to know when it affects how we live or how someone else is living in front of us. Most of what I can quote from Travis is funny, ridiculous stuff, things we shared together, quotes that wouldn't make any sense to any of you, the inside jokes, right? But it was how my small group leaders and Travis spoke to my heart, mind, and soul that actually changed me and the things that became permanent in my everyday following of Jesus. And see, the moment of Jesus' ministry that we're going to look at today in John chapter 4 uh, embodies that sentiment. This is a moment that actually informs why we as small group leaders in ASM do small group leader check-ins and we ask each other, how can we be praying for you uh, in, in your spiritual, mental, and emotional health? Because we believe that Jesus actually cares about all of those things, not just are you reading your Bible? Are you praying enough? The things that we typically think of when we ask for, how can we pray for you? But Jesus actually cares about our mental and emotional health as well. Which brings me to my big idea for today, is that Jesus cares and came to redeem all of who we are. Jesus cares about all of who you are. Jesus came to redeem all of who you are. All of who we are has been saturated with sin. It's all been affected. And so Jesus, as he buys us back with his death, burial, and resurrection, as we look forward to Easter, or looking back by the time you watch this video, uh, 
as we think about that, Jesus didn't come just to redeem our soul. He came to redeem everything of, about who we are that has been affected by this thing called sin. And so as we look at this idea, I want you to turn in your Bible. Hopefully you've got a physical one you can grab. Turn to John chapter 4, verses, starting in verse 1. It says this, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gathering or gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. John who? John the Baptist, not John the author. Although in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but it was his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. Stop. Okay, we got to stop here for a minute because here's the reality. Geography lesson, Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria. In fact, between Judea and Galilee, the, the, the quickest way was to go through Samaria. He didn't have to go through Samaria, though. In fact, Jews at this time would often go around when traveling between these two points, would cross over the Jordan, go around Samaria because they hated the Samaritans. Jews took a route around Samaria when traveling north to south or south to north that took three times as long to get there. Because Samaritans are a hated people group by the Jews. They're seen as half-bloods. They're seen as ethnically unclean. For my Harry Potter fans, they are mudbloods, all right? There is a reason that so often Jesus uses Samaritans in parables as the good guys to prove a point when he is talking to hard-hearted Jews. And our point number one, as we begin to unpack this passage, actually has so much to do with this person that Jesus comes into contact with and her ethnicity. Jesus, point number one, breaks through cultural boundaries. We're going to find that Jesus stops at a well. We're skipping forward to verse seven. He stops at a well, and this is what happens. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. They were off getting lunch. Uh, the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. Now notice she says both things. Not I'm a Samaritan, I'm a Samaritan woman. It's a double threat kind of thing. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. I'm going to stop here again. We're going to pause. There's so much significance wrapped up in these four verses. So much. This woman is a woman, number one. So I want you to think about if you have any uh, concept of like, you know, old school Baptist kind of thinking is this idea that like you don't dance because dancing leads to uh, premarital sex. Okay. Like in, in their world, like you do not even associate with a woman if you are a single man in private, and they are, while in a public space, they're the only ones there. Anyone who walked by could possibly assume that they were up to no good. Jesus is putting his reputation on the line here to speak to a woman. Now, let's take it one step further. She's also a Samaritan woman. When it says that Jews didn't associate with Samaritans, it wasn't just because they didn't have time for them. It wasn't because of a geographical distance thing. It was because they hated each other. And they are alone. And he's also about to point out for us 
that she has a bit of a sordid past. As we skip ahead, and we'll read about it in a moment, Jesus calls out her deepest point of shame, and it surrounds relationships. Now we find out that she has been married multiple times and is in fact now living with a man who is not her husband. We don't know how she came to be divorced so many times. Could be because in her day, uh, this is just true of the, t- the time period, she could have displeased her husband for any number of reasons. He didn't like her haircut, she burnt the toast, whatever. So maybe she's been wronged. It could be that all of her husbands have tragically died one after another. We don't know why, but we are led to believe the fact that she is with another man, which in this context would lead us to believe that she's probably living with him, uh, leads us to believe that maybe there's some things that don't look so good. And he loves her. Jesus loves her. When he calls out her sin, he continues to talk to her and love her. He speaks to the thing that brings her the most shame in her society, in her town. I want you to think about this. Jesus loves her when others slut shame her. That's powerful. Jesus loves her in the midst of the knowledge of the thing that brings her her deepest source of shame and regret, the thing that has defined her her present and her future because of a sordid past. And Jesus is a breaking through just a cultural boundary of those who are into pop and those who are into country music, right? Like this is much deeper. This is a deep-seated cultural, historical, racial bias. And not one Jesus holds, by the way, but one that this woman obviously expected him to. Because she says, why are you talking to me? I'm a Samaritan, you're a Jew. Jesus, when he tells the parable of the good Samaritan, he uses a Samaritan for the purpose that the Samaritan being the hero of the story to a Jewish audience is incredibly powerful because it doesn't sync up with their prejudice. And here Jesus is, crossing all kinds of cultural boundaries, putting his reputation on the line to speak truth and love and salvation to this woman. Point number two is that Jesus came to call all people to himself. And I'm, I'm worried that we, like the Israelites, that we, as the, the, the church today, we've forgotten that. We're simply going after the people who look like us, the people that we don't have a bias against, the people who are into the same things that we are. We get siloed. We get into our own little echo chambers and we forget that Jesus came for all people, not just the people who look like us, who sound like us, who live like us. The Jews forgot that time and time again throughout the Old Testament, that their job, like the church, the nation of Israel, their job was to call all people to God, was to point all people toward him. John chapter 4, picking up right away in verse 11. We're going to go for a stretch here, 11 through 25. So hang with me. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with. Remember, he said, I would give you living water. And the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself? As did also his sons and his livestock. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water from this well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become 
in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. She doesn't get what he's alluding to here. I'm going to let you know. Jesus is talking about salvation. The thirst that we have to be made right with God is quenched in Jesus. The woman said to him, she doesn't get it. Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Now that's really important because what she's noticing is like, I don't want to have to come back here anymore. During the day, all the women of of a particular town would probably go to the well at the same time. I want you to notice, we know this woman carries an immense amount of shame because she is the only woman at the well. She didn't come at the time that all the other women came. She's alone. She doesn't want to keep going to this place. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, here it is, guys. I can, uh, she said, he says, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands. And the man you now have, and that, that, that word there, that now have, means the person that you are now with. This is like a knowledge of, a knowing of. This is someone she is intimate with. Someone you now have, obtained, uh, are with, is not your husband. That what you have said is quite True. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Close, but not quite, right? He's the son of God. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now, that seems pretty messed up and kind of heavy. we got to stop there for just a minute. Jesus isn't saying that God and salvation through Jesus is not available to the Samaritans. What he's saying is that it is a promise that came through the Jews, so they have a more intimate knowledge that is to be shared, not hoarded. Jesus isn't saying it's not for them. He's just saying it didn't come through them. The promise of God came through the Jewish people. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. So this living water is salvation that Jesus came to bring. And the Jews had so lost sight of the fact that God has always been utilizing them as a means to proclaim to himself to the nations. That they are supposed to be pointing people to God. They've lost sight of this time and time and time again. So much so that this woman on the opposite end of things. Someone coming from the nations. Someone who is despised by the Jews. Cannot imagine a world where Jews and Samaritans worship together. So she's saying, who is right? Do we worship here on this mountain? Do we worship in Jerusalem? We can't both be correct. And Jesus says, you are right. You can't both be right. In fact, you're both wrong. Jesus is ushering in a new era of worshiping God in spirit and truth. And it's not actually that new in one sense because all throughout the Old Testament what we find is that the sacrifices of the Jewish people are repugnant to God. He doesn't want them because their hearts are far from him. What he's always been after is a heart of humility bent toward him in worship. And they've forgotten it again. 
And what Jesus is saying is this is the kind of worship that God has always been after. And it's not about a location, but a heart posture. And worship will no longer be about going to the temple, but it will be about those who are gathered in his name. We actually see this in Matthew 18, verse 20. Jesus says this, Wherever two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. How does he have the authority to say this? She's wondering, she's asking, she's hoping. Something is welling inside her. Who are you? What's going on here? And Jesus says, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one that you've been waiting for. Jesus came to redeem all peoples. Point three, our encounter with Jesus is a powerful story. Guys, let's skip ahead to uh, verse 27, and here's what we find. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. They're surprised. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? They had learned some things by now, which is shut up and let Jesus do his thing. Okay. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, okay, stop for a second. She left her water jar in order to, she came there with a purpose to get the water for the day in her home. If she left the water jar, what we're meant to read there is she left in a hurry. She ran and she said to the people in the town, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Skip to verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him, Jesus, because of the woman's testimony. What was her testimony? He told me everything I ever did. So, then, so when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his many words, more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Why is her story so powerful? It's one line. Come meet a man who told me everything I ever did. Number one, she's pointing them to Jesus. Come see the man. Not to herself, but she is unashamed. When she runs into the town and says, come see a man who told me everything I've ever done, she was at the well alone. People already know what she's done. They probably heard that and go, we all know what you've done. What difference does it make that another man knows? But it was the way in which she said it. She declared it openly, publicly, this deep source of shame. I don't know how many of you run around shouting about the things that you're ashamed of, the things you regret, but she wasn't hiding from it anymore, lurking in the shadows. It was in the light. And so often we hear stories of Jesus and we see a physical need met. And then it's followed by a spiritual need for the Savior. My struggle, personally, guys, in my neighborhood, in my upper middle class, blue collar, some maybe a little more uh, affluent neighborhood, and that's maybe where a lot of you guys find yourselves, is that I don't see a lot of physical needs that my, neighbor, my neighbors need. 
And so I look at the model of Jesus of meeting a physical need and then addressing a spiritual need. And I think it's actually deeper than the physical need. It is just meeting a need that shows you care. And Jesus does something different here. He models caring for the heart, mind, and soul. What once brought great shame is now nothing compared to what this woman found in Jesus. She has found the one her heart has longed for, the one who will restore her and redeem her to God. And Jesus' love and acceptance begin to redefine her present and future, whereas before her past used to hang dark clouds over all of that. See, maybe people in our circle don't need a free meal or a physical healing or some kind of physical help. Maybe you have a friend who just needs someone who will listen without judgment who will do as Jesus did. Maybe, maybe you have someone in your life who needs another person who will hug them in their sorrow. Uh, maybe our world, your world, needs a Jesus who would condescend to reach beyond what is comfortable socially. Maybe the world around us needs a Jesus as he is in this moment in John chapter 4, and not our safe, whitewashed, timid version. See, Jesus risked his entire reputation for one woman, and it changed an entire community because he sat with her in her shame and said, that's not who you are. See, her story is one of acceptance and redemption. And here's the cool thing, is that's your story too. See, your story is powerful precisely because it is her story. It's because you were once lost and are now found. It is because you were once defined by what you did, and now you are defined by what he's done. And my question to you, as we've just celebrated Easter, and you're watching this, is who will you share that story with? Who will you say to, this is my story, now come and meet the one who changed me? Who will you do that with? I really want you to sit in this moment, pause the video if you need to, and think of one name. Write it down. Put it somewhere. We used to call that in ASM your one life. Who is your one life? Our questions as we close. Why does any of this matter? You guys know that's going to be my question every time, right? Why does this matter? Because if it doesn't matter, why are we talking? Why are you listening, right? Why does any of this matter? And what is so compelling about this Jesus? The Jesus we find in the pages of Scripture. The Jesus we read about here in John chapter 4. What is so compelling about him? And who needs to know your story and how you can show them you care before you share? Guys, thanks so much for being with us. God bless you. We'll see you soon.